That is awesome. Amen. Jesus Christ is the great I am that I am. God claims that for himself when he speaks to Moses in the burning bush. And Jesus in his ministry claimed that very thing for himself as he is God incarnate on earth. Amen. I am, I am. I have a couple pictures to show you again today. We think about traps, right? We see the title of today's message is Freedom from the Trap, Luke chapter 17. Now, I love this one game. Let me show you a picture of this game. Anyone know who this, what this game is? Let's take a look at this picture of this game. Mousetrap. That's right, mousetrap. Who had mousetrap at one point in their house? Love that game. You see, if you see, if you haven't played it before, you kind of set up this elaborate mousetrap, really. And it's almost like, you know, when you set up dominoes and they fall and you can kind of set up elaborate patterns. It's the same sort of uh, principle um, and so it starts, and I'm, it's been so long since I've done it, yeah, it starts with the ball at the top of the bathtub, and it makes the, the man, you see the, the little blue man at the top of the screen, he kind of backflips, or no, that's towards the end, it's, it's something like that, <laughs> it's a great little setup, and it just works, you kind of go around the board, and you set it all up just right, and eventually you trap the mouse with a basket at the end, so, mouse trap, now we've got another picture, here's, a, here's the opposite, a people trap set by a mouse, you get it? <laughs> So, Disney World, yeah, it takes you a little bit, doesn't it? It's, it's Disney World. It's a picture of the Princess Castle, Cinderella's Castle at Disney World. It's a people trap set by a mouse. So either way, we take a look at, at, at being, being snared by a trap today. Because really when we see kind of the, uh, one of the key words, the key phrases here, it's, it speaks of setting a trap or setting a snare. And so turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 1. And Jesus said to his disciples... Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than he, that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Some of your translations may see cause one to stumble or cause a snare. It's the idea of setting a trap. So it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck. So pay attention to yourselves. Take heed. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in the day, and he turns to you and says, I repent, you must forgive him. When the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. This is hard for us to do, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea. And it would obey you. Will any, any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he is coming from the field, come at once and recline at my table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, dress properly, serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards then you can eat and drink? Does he thank the servant? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded... Say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what is our duty. Lord God, as we come to you this morning, we know that there are many teachings of your son Jesus Christ as he walked this earth in his earthly ministry that showed us exactly what it meant to be his follower, that we must emulate him in all that he does. But yet we know that, God, many of those things that he calls us to do are difficult. In fact, he tells us that we need to count the cost of what it means to follow him. And Lord, when it comes to this issue today of, of, of forgiving, 
being willing to forgive, being on guard to, to not set snares and traps for those that are around us. Or it can be difficult. And we at times feel like the, the disciples here, the apostles, where we must call into you and say, God, give me more faith. I need more faith to do this. But Lord, you tell us that we have all the faith that we need if we simply tap into that faith. And if we follow just in, in great humility unto you and follow Jesus Christ in all that we do, being obedient, simple obedience. Lord, we thank you that as you call us to do difficult things in life, that you don't leave us twisting in the wind, trying to figure out the Christian life on our own. But Lord, you guide us, you hold our hand, you, you guide us every step of the way in what we're called to do. As we are called, most importantly, to be ambassadors for your kingdom. To be ones as we again are in the midst of missions month that are living missional in all that we do. That we have open eyes as Jesus did. As he looked out upon the sheep and he wept because he, they said that they were like sheep without a shepherd. The people that he looked upon. God may we have that same sort of compassion that Jesus did. May we have the same sort of compassion that you do for us. A father's heart. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So the first thing that we're going to see today is don't set a trap. That's the first point that we're going to look at in verses 1 through 2. And they say this again. Jesus spoke to his disciples and he said, temptations to sin are surely to come. They're going to come. You know, whether you're snared into sin, a trap uh, that you fall into for sin, it's going to come. Temptation is going to come. But he said, woe to the one through whom the snare does come or whom the trap is set by. It would be better for that one if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than he should cause one of these little ones to stumble. So again, Jesus says, just know temptation is going to be a part of the Christian life. It is. It's part of it. Remember uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, a very familiar passage to all of us. No temptation is overtaking you except which is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able to bear. But with the temptation, he will make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So we know that temptations are a part of life. It's going to come even though we have been made new in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, when Christ comes into our life, he changes all things. All things are made new. The old is gone. The new has come. However, we can enthrone, if you will, the old man each and every day. We can give place to the old nature. We can give place to the old sin nature. And so it's our job, it's our part of God's, the other side of, of sanctification that God is doing in our life, making us more like Jesus Christ each and every day of our life. It's our job to come uh, each and every day and say, God, I surrender my life to you again. Holy Spirit, I allow you to guide my life. You know, it's in the same way that we came to know Jesus Christ as our Savior at the beginning of our relationship with him. We surrendered our life unto Jesus. So each and every day, in fact, it's a good practice to just get up and say, God, my life is yours today. I surrender my life anew to you. And so when the temptations of life come that we know are certain to come, we are already set in the right frame of mind to say that, God, my life is yours today. Keep me from temptation. Help me to bear, to, to bear that burden of that temptation so that there may be a way of escape. So he says offenses will come, but woe to the one through whom they do come. Woe to the one who sets a trap or sets a snare for another. You know, 
Maybe some of you were growing up uh, did this kind of same trick that me and my buddies used to do to one another. You'd have like, say, three friends, and friend number one would be talking to friend number two while friend number three goes and kneels down behind friend number two, right? And what comes next? Friend number one pushes friend number two, falling over friend number three, and all the time people are wondering, are they really friends at all if they're acting like this? Yes, we were. We just like to mess with each other. This is the idea, too, of not only setting a snare, the word there means, but, but also a stumble. In fact, some of your translations may say cause him to stumble. But woe to the one through whom they do come. He said in verse 2, it would be better if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Let me show you another picture here of what exactly a millstone would look like. Now, this is one, obviously, a newer millstone, but the principle was basically the same. There would be a stone like this that was set in a basin, and a lot of times you can't see here because it's probably very weathered, very old. There are grooves cut in it, and so it was pulled by an animal in a circle, and so the grain that was underneath the millstone would be ground out and kind of pushed out to the side through some of the grooves that were carved in it. All that's kind of secondary to the fact that that thing is very heavy. It's very heavy. If you put that thing around your neck, you're going to the bottom of the sea. And Jesus said it would be better if that were to happen than for someone to cause these little ones to stumble. Now we see from similar context in Matthew chapter 18 that uh, if you look there in that context, there were actually little children that were gathered around at that time. Um, and so it could have been a similar teaching of Jesus. We see that throughout his ministry where it's a similar teaching, just not the same instance. So we might see Matthew's account and Luke's account of the same instance, or it could be Matthew's account, Luke's account of a different instance, but the same teaching. Either way, whether there are little children present or not, it was not only speaking about little children, but I think very clearly it was illustrative of believers in general, especially immature believers. And I think by principle... Not directly stated by principle, we could even apply this to how we act around unbelievers. Are we causing a believer to stumble? Especially an immature believer in Jesus Christ, maybe someone that just came to know Jesus Christ. How are we acting around them? How are we uh, giving an example of Jesus Christ in their life? Or what about an unbeliever? By principle of this passage, are we acting that way? Are we causing an unbeliever to reject Christ? Are we causing a believer to stumble are we causing in some way a, an unbeliever to reject Christ? What about a sour attitude? What about if it's just kind of your moniker, your MO, that you're just sour? You're just a sour personality. And it's the type that, you know, people might see a cringing when they come and, you know, something like that. How does that look? What sort of a, what sort of a testimony are we giving, especially to the new believer, the little one in Christ? What kind of a testimony are we giving of the character of Christ? Something very similar to that. What about gossip? What about if you're the person that, you know, you talk about, did you hear about Mary or did you hear about Joe? And as soon as Mary and Joe come around the corner, you switch on the charm. You're like, ooh, Mary, Joe. You know, you just say, well, how are you doing? It just completely changes. Either way, sour attitude or gossip then turn on the charm. It is absolutely the opposite of what we are told to do in Ephesians 4.29. Said, let no unnecessary word come out of your mouth, but only what is good for necessary edification. No evil word, but only what is good for necessary edification. That word there, edification, means to build up, to build up and to strengthen, not so much in kind of building construction, but the building up of a body. You know, when you're building up your body, and even think about a bodybuilder, not only do they need to lift weights, but they need to, to, to fill their body with good protein so their body can be built up and the muscles can be built. So when we think about the kind words, not the sour words, not the gossip of life, but when we think about speaking edifying words, kind words, 
to other believers in Jesus Christ in the midst of the church, it's like a kind of a verbal protein for the church. We are building up the body. We are strengthening the body of Christ. So maybe it's a sour attitude. Maybe it's a gossiping attitude. Fill in whatever you want to in the, in the blank there, whatever it may be. Or maybe in general, it's just behaving like an unbeliever. Behaving like an unbeliever. Someone who hasn't been changed by Jesus Christ. Their life hasn't been changed. They haven't been made new. And I say this with a lot of uh, the, the comfort of a pastor, the conviction of a pastor, and just a, the broken heart of a pastor. Let me, let me just be very honest with you, but I'm going to speak the very words of Jesus. If you can consistently walk through your life and you are consistently acting like an unbeliever, someone who hasn't been changed by Jesus Christ, there may be a very good chance that, in fact, you have not been changed by Jesus Christ, that you aren't a Christian. You have not been changed. You've not been made new. You know, Jesus himself says that a good tree bears good fruit and a bad tree bears bad fruit. And he wanted to be very clear, as was his very purpose, as was his teaching, that he wanted to be very clear. He wanted to set the bar high. He wanted to just be very honest with everyone was. If you are bearing good fruit, there's a good tree. If you're bearing bad fruit, there's a good chance that you, in fact, haven't been changed. Now, does this mean that, that we achieve our salvation unto ourselves by behaving well and acting well and bearing fruit? Absolutely not. Does this mean that we keep our salvation by bearing good fruit, behaving well, acting well, acting like Jesus Christ? Absolutely not. But it is great evidence of whether the fact uh, is true that we have been changed by Jesus Christ. Have we been made new? So he says again, but woe to the one through whom they do come. So the first thing that we see is we can't set a trap. But the other thing is don't step in a trap. Don't step in a trap. Verses 3 through 4 say this. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and he comes back to you and he says, I repent, you must forgive him. Why do we kind of label this point as don't step in a trap? Again, temptation to sin will come. There will be, as the headings of some of your uh, translations of, 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 your, of your section of Scripture say, uh, talk about offenses. Offenses will come. Opportunities to stumble by other people offending you will come. Temptations to sin. But it is your choice whether you're going to step in that trap of bitterness or not and let it fester in your life. In fact, he says, if your brother sins against you, those closest to us can do the absolute greatest damage in our life. Have you ever heard of corporate espionage? Corporate espionage is much like international espionage in which there is someone who is going and trying to steal secrets. On an international level or um, national espionage, it's one country trying to steal a secret from another country. Well, the principle is much the same in corporate espionage. It is one company that is trying to steal the secrets of another Maybe it's a great technological advance. Maybe it's a process that, that they can do much better than this corporation. And so whether it's a person that is employed by Corporation A that just on their own sees this as an opportunity to make money and so they steal these secrets and they put them out on the black market or whether it's Corporation B actually plants someone on the inside of Corporation A to steal these secrets or Corporation B knows there's, a, there's someone out there that's selling these secrets and they get it Either way, it's what's known as corporate espionage. In fact, in 2009, one instance of it was Starwood. If you've heard of Starwood, the luxury brand that also has hotel, they accused Hilton, 
or at least the, uh, the conglomerate that now owns Hilton, of stealing some of their luxury brand secrets. Hilton hired 10 uh, executives and managers from Starwood, and in fact, one guy that was over the luxury brands at the time, Starwood said he downloaded massive amounts, in their words, massive amounts of, of trade secrets onto his personal computer that then he took to Hilton. And you just see scores of this time after time after time, but the reason it's most effective is because there's someone on the inside that's very close to the company that's being stolen from. In the same way, that is why sometimes these offenses, these hurts, this pain that happens can be so difficult when it comes from another brother and sister in Christ. Or maybe it's a literal brother. Or maybe it's a close friend. It's because they're closest to us. And it can really cause a pain. So when that happens, we are not slaves to the situation. We don't have to fall into this trap. We don't have to fall into this snare. We don't have to stumble over this stumbling block. When there's an offense that comes, when there is a difficulty that comes, when there is a challenge that comes in an interpersonal relationship, and we have the opportunity of what are we going to do with it, Jesus gives us two things that we need to do. First of all, we rebuke the brother. We rebuke him. Now, kind of in our modern culture, and our modern sensibility, we don't like the word rebuke, do we? It kind of seems too harsh or, you know, it just kind of seems antiquated or whatever. But it's a wonderful word that speaks exactly to the heart of what we're supposed to do when an offense comes in our life. We're supposed to confront in a loving and straightforward way. That's what we're to do. We're supposed to confront a brother or sister in a loving, straightforward way. But we don't like to do this for many reasons. One of those is the fact that we would have to kind of pierce this facade that we're all carrying around, right? We love to kind of carry this facade that everything is fine, everything's good in my life. And if I actually go and speak to a brother and sister that has is, that is, uh, hurt me, then I have to admit that I'm hurt, right? We don't like to do it. But Jesus says you must rebuke. You must rebuke. You must go and you must lovingly confront a person on what they've done that's hurt you. Now it's not to the point of trying to get back at them or trying to make it sting like they stung you. But it's the, it, you are initiating forgiveness. You're initiating the rebuke for the point of forgiving your brother. Matthew chapter 18 verse 15 says when you do so you have gained your brother. You have gained your brother. That bond is even tighter. Here's a kind of a third thing, too, almost a secondary principle of this. Don't be difficult to rebuke. Don't be difficult to rebuke. Now, I know if we kind of get caught off guard with something that we've done, it feels like we just got T-boned at an intersection, right? If someone comes and says something to us, we can get caught off guard, feel like we've been blindsided by it, right? I understand. But don't, as a general rule, be someone that's difficult to confront lovingly with an issue of life. Be humble. Be willing to accept uh, the fact that you may have hurt someone. And, and be willing to say, you know what, I am sorry for that. I am really sorry that I did that. Would you please forgive me? Don't be difficult to rebuke. So he says, rebuke him, first thing. Second thing he says, if he repents, forgive him. Forgive him. Now technically in the original language, this is a conditional clause, an if-then type of thing. But I really think it's more to do with the flow of the passage rather than if you look at kind of the whole testimony of Scripture that you can only forgive this person if they come to you and repent. You're like, I'm waiting, and if he's not coming, if he's not coming, I'm not going to forgive him. Only if he repents. I think it's more just kind of keeps the flow going here. And really we look at the whole testimony of Scripture and we think about it. At times we know that it must be the offended person. When we're offended, sometimes we must initiate the forgiveness that's sort of what Jesus is saying with rebuke. We either forgive or we fester. Write that down. We either forgive or we fester. 
We're either willing to forgive a person. We can't just think that we've kind of pushed it to the side and it's gone, no big deal. If you don't forgive, it will fester in you and it will grow to a root of bitterness in your life. You must be willing to rebuke and you must be willing to forgive. And he says, how many times do we do it? Almost the question is kind of rolling around in the minds of the believers, the disciples. And he says, you shall do it seven times. And if he comes to you in a a day and he says, I repent, you forgive him seven times. Now, this wasn't an upper limit. This is hyperbole. In fact, when you see a companion passage again in Matthew, it says 70 times 7. It's a number of completion of perfection. And it's hyperbole that means you just keep on forgiving. If they come to you, you keep on forgiving. If they offend you and they come and they say, I repent, you be willing to forgive. How can we do anything else? When we look at the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, when we look at the lengths to which God went to save us from our sin and bring forgiveness to us, that the sum total of the sin of mankind was heaped upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ. In his body, he bore our sins on the tree. When we look at that, how can we do anything else but forgive? Seven times seven, just keep giving. Just keep granting that forgiveness. And so the disciples came to the Lord and they said, you know, this is really difficult for us to do, increase our faith. But what we have to do is we have to look not so much at what we, the increase that we need, but to access the power at our fingertips. That's the third point, access your power. Have you ever seen a Lamborghini out on the street? Have you ever seen a Lamborghini or maybe a Ferrari or something like that out on the street? I actually saw one on the street when I lived in Texas. And, you know, obviously we know why they're driving on the street. You know, it's just kind of the neat to drive, the prestige of driving one around. But whenever you see, like, kind of a supercar out on the street, you say, man, that is a shame. That thing needs to be out on the open road. That thing needs to be, like, out on the Autobahn, you know, where there's no speed limit. They just take off and fly or a drag strip or maybe just a, a track and just open the thing up and access the power that it has. This is kind of the instance that we see here in verses 5 and 6. And again, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. This is really difficult for us to do. And the Lord said to them, if you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea. You know, at least they took it seriously, right? Jesus didn't directly rebuke them, but at least we have to say they took it seriously. They could have said, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, okay, well, we'll, you know, don't. Don't cause a brother to stumble. If we stumble, if they offend us, then, then you know, I know where to forgive. Yeah, sure, I got it. They took it very seriously. At least you got to give them credit for that. And they said, this is, seems really difficult. Increase our faith. And Jesus didn't directly rebuke them as much as he taught them. And he said, let's redirect your focus, guys. Let's take a look at this. He says, again, if you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, again, a very unique Greek construction there that you can almost translate it in such a way to say, if you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, and you do, and you do, then you would have the power, the ability to say to that mulberry tree, be uprooted, be planted in the sea. You know, it's not a matter of the faith in our life as as needing excess. It's not a matter of excess. It's a matter of access. Write that down too. It's not a matter of having more and excess, but accessing the power that we have. Is it kind of not right for us to go to the Lord and say, God, help me strengthen my faith. This is going to be really difficult. Please give me strength in this. Absolutely not. I think maybe, in fact, that's the better way that they could have said it. In fact, that we could as well. Jesus, help me to help strengthen my faith. 
help me. This is really, really difficult for me. Give me, give me that faith that I need. Help me strengthen that faith so I may follow you. So we have to access our power for this difficult task. We also, fourthly and finally, we have to walk in humble obedience. Humble obedience. Jesus says, will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's coming from the field, come at once and recline at my table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, dress properly, serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you can eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you've done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done was our duty. You imagine with me if you go to a restaurant and the, the waiter starts to bring out the chips and salsa and you just say, thank you. Thank you for bringing me these wonderful chips and salsa. These are so incredible. Thank you for your humble servitude. Your waiter would probably say, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take this table over here and you know, kind of get subbed in. You'd think you're crazy. It's because it's what they're commanded to do or it's what they've signed up to do. It's in fact what you're paying them to do. It's just what is expected. It's what's expected. Anything else, and, and almost if we would want more than this, more than this simple calling of what it means to follow Jesus Christ, again, as he said, count the cost of following me, it's almost like the participation trophy of the Christian life. We want a trophy for something we're expected to do. Now, the disciples may say, this is hard. This is harsh. We may even say, that's kind of harsh. To just say this difficult task of of making sure we don't cause a brother or sister to stumble. And then if they cause us to stumble, to just freely forgive them. And even if they keep doing it in a day, to keep on forgiving them. This is hard. But again, we look at it in context of the cross. What has God done to save us from our sin? You know, and in fact... Anything less than this is almost like giving ourselves some sort of a loophole, almost unintentionally, almost kind of subconsciously giving ourselves a loophole to make us think that this is some sort of an upgrade to the Christian life. If we don't realize that this is exactly what Jesus Christ came to model, freely forgiving us for the sin that we've done, paying the price of our sin debt on the cross so that we might be forgiven. If we we begin to think that this is some sort of an upgrade to the Christian life, like I can't do this, this is like the Billy Graham level of Christianity, or this is like the Apostle Paul level of Christianity, then we almost kind of give ourselves a kind of a back-ended, backdoor loophole to say, well, you know, this is something I could attain to, but I can't do it. Jesus is saying, this is what's expected. I've modeled this for you. Walk in that humble obedience. You see, faith is exercised without an expectation of reward. Our reward is Christ. Our reward is Christ. Our heavenly reward is more Christ. We receive Christ. We receive that wonderful salvation, the good news of the gospel, and that free and unfiltered presence of Jesus Christ in our lives. You see, we're expected to hold up a brother rather than trip up a brother. We're expected to forgive because we were richly forgiven. We have all the faith that we need to do this. And we must walk in humble obedience. You see, when we think about maturity in Christ, growing in that relationship with Christ, it means freeing others rather than trapping them. Freeing them rather than trapping them. Freeing them to be all that they can be in Christ and love and serve him. It means forgiving rather than seething when we've been sinned against. 
It means exercising our faith in the midst of difficult tasks. It means walking in simple, obedient humility unto Christ. Following his example. Following his way. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you now for this great example set by Jesus Christ in his life. And we know that he had, he's given us hard teachings, but yet we know that we have all the power that we need. Lord God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for salvation. We thank you for the fact that we've been changed, we've been made new, we've been cleansed by the very blood of Jesus Christ. Nothing we could do unto ourselves, but only through Jesus Christ. God, I pray now for those that are here today, specifically for those that don't know Christ as their Savior. They've never come to that place in life where they have surrendered their life to him. And as he himself said, they've become born again or born from above, made new. Maybe there's some in here today that have been wrestling with this very decision of surrendering their life to Jesus Christ for quite some time. May this today be the day of surrender in their life. Lord, we thank you for all the great blessings that you give us. We thank you for even though you set a high bar in our life, you know that by achieving this, this bar, first of all, you've given us all the power that we need. But by but, but living to this standard of Jesus Christ is where we will find joy and happiness and peace and satisfaction. God, we thank you that salvation is free. But Lord, we also thank you that you're walking with us every step of the way, hand in hand. As you're conforming us to the image of Christ, Lord, as we are obeying you in that simple, obedient humility. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We come now to this.